You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, this is Doc G, and today on Earn and Invest, we talk to Shannon Hayes, a third-generation farmer, about redefining rich. It took me four years of medical school, three years of residency, and a decade of practicing as a physician to realize that this localized economy that I had built around myself wasn't working. I was privileged enough to have plenty of money, but I was anything but rich. You see, at the time, I was just starting to understand the difference between the two. Money, time, wealth, community, nature, Concepts that in many ways I was unwilling to understand until reaching my 40s. My guest on the show today wrestled with these issues a tad earlier than I did. She left her childhood home, the farm she grew up on, to conquer the rigor of academia and earn a PhD in sustainable agriculture. And much like my departure from medicine, she decided to leave it all and she returned to farming and entrepreneurship. She had to radically readjust her ideas about wealth. She had to redefine rich. Skyrocketing inflation is hurting us in the pumps, grocery aisles, and leaving many investors with restless nights. So why are ultra-wealthy investors sleeping like babies? They've already planned for this nightmare scenario and diversified their portfolios. But now, hundreds of thousands of everyday investors are doing the same with Masterworks, the first platform that lets anyone invest in multi-million dollar blue-chip art. That very same type of paintings that hang in museums and mansions. Want to join your fellow Earn and Invest listeners? Skip the Masterworks waitlist at masterworks.io slash EAI. That's masterworks.io slash EAI. See disclaimers at masterworks.io slash disclaimer. Shannon Hayes is a third-generation farmer, chef, and CEO of Sapbush Hollow Farm. Her most recent book, Redefining Rich, Achieving True Wealth with Small Business, Side Hustles, and Smart Living, argues that the economy just doesn't work. It doesn't work for women, for free thinkers, for the working class, or even for white-collar professionals. Shannon, welcome to Earn and Invest. In the intro to Redefining Rich, you say, we don't look like millionaires. Heck, after 20 years of marriage, I can count the years we've netted more than 20 grand on my left hand. In spite of that, our savings and net worth continue to grow each year. 
I read that and it kind of blew my mind. Really, $20,000. I mean, that's not a lot of money. <laughs> no, it is definitely not a lot of money in conventional sense. And there have been years when it's been so, so low. And we're always, we're always dazzled to see just how low we can take it, though we're not really in a quest to do that, I have to tell you. Yeah, the conception of that much money, and I know we're going to talk about this later, that it isn't all dollars and cents. And we certainly define wealth in many ways, not just in our paychecks. I want to go back to the beginning with you. Set the stage for me a little bit. Tell me about growing up on Sapbush Hollow Farms in West Fulton, New York. This is in the northern foothills of the Appalachians. What was your childhood like? Well, you know, Doc, as soon as I tell you this, then you're going to start to probably understand how someone can count the number of times they've earned more than 20000 on one hand, because that's that's the key to how I do it. So this is the northern foothills of the Appalachian mountain chain. As you said, it's the northern Catskill Mountains. And up where I am, we see frost 11 months out of the year. Climate change is adjusting that a little bit, but it's very rocky. The, the, the pitch of the hills is very steep. And so conventional agriculture, as we tend to know it, could not take root. But subsistence farming really did. And there was an Appalachian farm, small farm subsistence culture here when I grew up. My family moved to this farm in 1979. So I was five years old when we came to this place. And because of the mountains, we were very cut off from what happened down in the valleys, which as I was growing up became suburban fringe. And so in, I learned two different ways of life. Down in the valley, it was about academics and the pursuit of a career. But up in the hills, I was taken care of for much of my life by neighbors who were subsistence farmers. And so down in the valley, I was learning the importance of pursuing the career and the paycheck. But back home, I was learning that I didn't need it. And those things weren't being directly said to me, but they were infused in my life. I was standing beside this woman. We would can, we would pull things from her garden. I would always shovel her barn every weekend and clean out all the cow manure because I wanted a good meal and she would pay me with a good meal. There was always an exchange and it was never cash. Well, every now and then she'd throw five bucks my way to go get some candy or something. But it was it was a, a lifetime of relationships between this particular Appalachian subsistence farm couple and me that where money didn't exist, where... Now that I look back at it, I was, I was an apprentice on a certain way of life. And that empowered me when I hit a point in academia and felt like, I felt like the game was rigged. As a woman, I felt like I wasn't going to win. There was a certain point where I was studying everything. I was pretty good at crunching numbers, pretty good at looking at the social scene. And I started to feel that I wasn't going to be able to get ahead, that I was being sold a bill of goods. And when I started to recognize that, that's when I realized, wait a minute, I had a different education and I have something else to shift to, to build a different kind of life. It's notable that your first leanings as you made it to college and then eventually a PhD program at Cornell is that you were leaning towards academia at first. Yes, I was, an, I was a professor brat. So my dad... My family is there's Dr. Hayes, Dr. Hayes, and Dr. Hayes. So academics were pushed very heavily where where I'm from. My dad was a product, professor of reproductive physiology in livestock. 
and my brother's a marine biologist. So yeah, there was a culture. There totally was a culture. But my parents had started this, for them, it was a hobby farm. But when they were, they were working 50 to 70 hours a week, they were really busy with their professional careers. And I was home alone on this hobby farm and then walking up to the, my neighbors and spending a lot of time around their kitchen table and out in their barn. And it was never a hobby for them, but it was never a full-time income either. And so I was, you know, studying economics and all these things in school, but then coming home and going, wait a minute, there, there's a different way. There's a different system. It's actually, it's an interesting situation because in a sense, it sounds like your parents moved there as the idyllic life. And yet what they were living was the academic life. And so you pursued the academic life, but that's not where you landed. No, no, it really, it, it, the academic life was brutal. There was a moment, I talk about it in the book, when I was um, sitting in my little grad student cubicle and I was well on my way to completing my PhD and I heard a couple female graduate students talking about a female professor who was uh, recently divorced and was single parenting two children under the age of four and she was on the cusp of being denied tenure. And the discussion was how she didn't deserve it. And it wasn't worth it for the department to keep her because she wasn't carrying her weight. And that really frightened me because I then made a list of every female professor I'd ever have. And growing up in academia, I knew a lot of female professors. And I wanted to know who managed to have the things that I really wanted, which was to get married, stay married, have kids, and achieve tenure. And I didn't know one. And I grew up in academia. So yes, we. What interestingly, what happened is I went on to grad school and started studying what was fascinating to me, which was sustainable agriculture and community, because I was coming from this life. So I was, I, I was looking at this world that I came from, and I was putting it under a lens, under a microscope, really, to understand it. And at the same time, there was a constant dialogue going back and forth between my parents and me. And they ended up actually, I started taking more and more courses in farm business management. I started crunching numbers. They ended up retiring early. And then, as you know from the book, I ended up walking away from my career. My husband was fired and we all just decided, hey, we're going to make this work. I want to talk in a moment about the economics of sustainable agriculture of the economics of Sapbush Hollow when you took it over. But first and foremost, I want to read a quote. And let's talk a little bit about the journey that Bob took too, because you're only not only talking about your pivot, but his too. You said, Bob and I couldn't jump on that bandwagon. We chose to work with three generations of our family to build a business in a town everyone deemed lost, to identify the deeper sources of security and wealth that are so often confused with dollars. You spoke about what the bandwagon was for you. It was academia and seeing especially some of these female role models struggling. What was it like for Bob? Oh, it was really hard for him. So Bob, he is an environmentalist. Um, he has a sharp tongue. He's very, very <laughs> funny. If you were hanging out with him over cocktails, you would find him an absolute stitch. But he says what's on his mind. He's a soft-spoken man who loves to sit and play the guitar and watch birds. And he was in jobs where that was a desirable trait, but it wasn't what he was supposed to be doing. <laughs> he wasn't able to, to save the earth that he loved. And so he was always in conflict. And that tended to erupt out of his mouth. And so he got in trouble a fair amount when, <laughs> for saying what he thought about things. 
and he was fired for insubordination. And um, it was just a few mornings after he was fired when we woke up. We have this little cabin. I know this is an audio recording, but you can see in this video behind me, there's this little cabin that we bought for not very much money. And we woke up on this first morning together after getting fired, and there was snow blanketing the outside here. And we realized that we didn't have to navigate snowy roads. We didn't have to try to get anywhere. And we watched the sun come up. And I remember we spent the entire day outside hiking. And we realized if there was any way possible that we could never go back, we were going to never go back to having a job that had that kind of control over our lives and over our spirits and our sense of calling what we're supposed to be doing in this life. As I'm listening to your story, I want to say, and they lived happily ever after. But I'm aware of the fact that the economics of sustainable agriculture and of small farms aren't great. You pivoted from solid careers, ones where you knew that you would be receiving an income to a farm that was not operating in the black at the time, was it? (laughs) No, no, it was not operating in the black. And most farms that you meet are not operating in the black. So we were no exception, I have to tell you. And what we ended up having to do was identify what, what we were becoming aware of was that there was a deeper wealth that we were after. And we started to recognize that those careers were not as lucrative as as they looked like. We did have a point when I had just, my PhD was very fresh, and we had an opportunity to pursue a dual career life. And we would have had to sell this little cabin that we're living in and move about six hours away. We would have had to buy a house that was probably four times more expensive. And I ran the numbers on those careers, those that potential and those salaries. And I backed out what we were going to pay in taxes. And I backed out what we would pay for professional wardrobes and the cost of having to buy rather than grow our own food. And I backed out the cost of, you know, just the, the transportation and the housing. And we only came out $10,000 ahead of where we would be if we stayed on this farm that was losing money. And that's kind of crazy. And that's before we even had children. So we weren't even considering daycare in this equation. And so that was very early on in the game when I was looking at it saying, wait a minute, you know, I'm told that life as a farmer is a life of being impoverished, of most likely not making a lot of money. But here I am looking at the career track that's supposed to be the golden ticket. And that's not looking like it's getting me anywhere either. And that was a real wake-up call. If if this doesn't work, if this system that we're told of, of pursuing the career after getting all the education isn't going to generate any more money than if I'm living with my family and growing my own food and having getting the opportunity to raise my kids myself, then a severe there's a problem in the economy. Well, actually I think it could work it could work in our favor because maybe we shouldn't be doing that. Maybe we shouldn't be racing like that. It doesn't work. And so, yes, on the books, it looks like the farm loses money. And yet, as I've explained to you, we have continued to improve our bottom line and improve our net worth year after year after year. That entails a different way of quantifying our wealth, but also we have developed a different strategy for our economic survival. You've talked about the system and really, at least in the beginning, you were talking about microeconomics, your own economic situation. But in a sense, 
This also reflects macroeconomics. Another quote from the book, in the face of a broken economy and feverish planet, I truly believe that small farms and small social-minded businesses like independent cafes, microbreweries, health food stores, and consignment shops, as well as the home-based herbalists and alternative healthcare practitioners, the acupuncturists, massage therapists, and chiropractors, and the socially conscious craftsperson, auto mechanic, or repair person were key to saving the world. What gave you the confidence? I mean, that's a big step to take. You had seen how difficult farming could be. How did you know that you would make at least your own personal economy work? Well, that's the PhD coming in. So I was studying local economies and small-scale agriculture. That was what I was looking at for my research. And so long before we had buy local campaigns, I was looking at the research from the 1940s on forward as our country was pushing after World War II to industrialize, to get farms, to get big or get out. But also we were looking at our country was trying to recruit big corporate businesses to create the corporate lifestyle. And there were studies that were showing even back then that the quality of life for people in big, you know, big business cities was not as good as small business cities. So when I make that statement, it was based on research that I knew from my graduate training. And I have just come to observe it. I've observed what, and I mean, they have, they've, this has been replicated time and time again, which is why buy local, shop small, shop local is such a well-known, these are well-known catchphrases at this point. We've proven this. And I've seen it in my life. I've seen how as a business owner, again, you know, I started off with my parents' farm, but then, yeah, we really became entrepreneurs because we loved it. And as I became more entrepreneurial in my community and built more networks with all the other fellow business owners, my life got challenging. It's complicated. It's messy. There's no doubt about it, but it's very fun. Even when I'm dealing with, oh my gosh, I just made another big mistake and I had the worst day ever. It's still fun to talk about it with my other colleagues who are fellow business owners. We really have a lot of camaraderie. We laugh at each other. We hold each other's feet to the fire. We call each other out on our behaviors. And I can see it. I'm living what this research told us, that this quality of life of small business people who know their customers you know, you go into a small business owner's premises and they know your name. They know about your kids. They know about your partner. They know what you're going through. And you go in someplace and you have a human connection and you're not a nobody in these establishments. People care. You go into a coffee shop where the barista knows how you like your coffee. They know you like to have your croissant warmed up a little bit. These little things that tell you, you are a person in this world. You are part of a place that values that you're here. It's deeply rewarding. And it's just a real high to be on the other side of that, to get to be that business owner who can care for a community in that way. You know, you use the term life-serving economy versus an extractive economy. What do those terms mean and how does that apply to what you were just describing? Well, the extractive economy, I would say our conventional economy right now is extractive. Um, we value how well we're doing based on the gross domestic product, how much money is generated. And if that money is generated by a lawyer because people's marriages are falling apart, that just goes into the GDP. If people are really depressed and they're spending a lot of money on meds, that goes into the GDP. So it's just about money. It's not about the quality of the life that is behind it. 
And a lot of times the, that economy does not, is not being asked to account for the cost to our soil and our water and our land. We're losing topsoil. The waters are getting polluted. The oceans are heating up. This isn't getting figured into the bottom line. Now, I, prefer to live in what I call the life-serving economy. And this is an economy that considers the clarity of the water, the purity of the air, the fertility of the soil, and the happiness of the people as the foundations of the wealth. It's not about how many dollars are generated. It is about these fundamental elements that make for true wealth. And it's about investing in that true wealth and then working in tandem with it, and then reinvesting in that wealth. And so that's where these small businesses that are really focused on on sourcing fairly, on paying attention to the production stream, and on building relationships with people, and at the same time, allowing employees and business owners to have the time to be with their family, to connect with the earth, to go outside and dabble their toes in the streams and to be able to play and rest and have a balanced, happy life. That's life serving. And that's, that's one that we can participate in in the long haul. We're talking to Shannon Hayes. She is a third-generation farmer, chef, and CEO of Sapbush Hollow Farm. We're going to take a short break. I'm Doc G, and this is the Earn and Invest Podcast. All right, so most of us know the bad news already. If you were using Mint as a budgeting app, it has shut down. But the good news is... There's something better, and it's called Monarch Money. I started using Monarch Money myself about five months ago, and I knew immediately that I liked it more than any other budgeting app I had ever used. For one, it focuses on collaboration. This is easy to share with your spouse, your partner, your financial advisor, and it's aspirational. Not only can you look at your current budget, but what do you want to buy? What do you want your goals to be? You can focus on those in Monarch Money. It's the next generation of personal finance apps. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Furthermore, you can create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com earn. Again, that's monarchmoney.com E-A-R-N. What I like about this app is it's intuitive, easy to use, quick to sign on. It's collaborative, as we talked about. It's customizable. The idea is you can use this app the way you want to use it. And the reason why is the Monarch Money team is customer-focused. They are focusing on you, me, and all the other people who want to use this app to live a better financial life. After trying out Monarch Money for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. Prices at the pump are skyrocketing. Simple trips to the grocery store are stretching the wallet thinner and thinner. And rising inflation is making your hard-earned nest egg worth less every day. Plenty of investors are having restless nights, but the top 1% are sleeping like babies. So what are they doing that we don't? 
It's a word you hear over and over again, diversification. Being told to diversify your portfolio feels like being told to eat your vegetables. It's not like we have the same access or resources as the Harvard Endowment or Jeff Bezos. We can't just buy beachfront property, sports teams, and priceless works of art like they do. But one of the most exclusive alternative assets is finally cracking open thanks to Masterworks.io. They're the first company making the $6 trillion universe of art investing available to everyday investors. Instead of needing $20 million and the email of a mysterious art dealer to buy a Monet painting, now you can invest in one through Masterworks. More than 200,000 members, many of them fellow Earn and Invest subscribers, have already signed up to join the art investing revolution. Want to join them? I've partnered with Masterworks to let Earn and Invest subscribers skip the waitlist. Jump to the front of the line at masterworks.io slash EAI. That's masterworks.io slash EAI. Previous offers have sold out in hours, so don't wait around. See disclosures at masterworks.io slash disclaimer. I'm going to reintroduce Shannon Hayes. She is the author of Redefining Rich, Achieving True Wealth with Small Business, Side Hustles, and Smart Living. Shannon, the name of your book is Redefining Rich, and you talk about this concept of true wealth. What is true wealth, and how does that compare to the traditional ideas of wealth that we have in society today? True wealth to me, it's going to be a little bit different to each person, but true wealth are the things that we are after most deeply in our lives. And I think it starts with, as we said before the break, it starts with the clean water, the pure air, and the soil, because it's from there that we can grow nourishing food so that we can enjoy health. And when we have nourishing food and we can gather around it as family and friends, so we can have conviviality and community and love, all of these things are the true wealth in life. And those are the things Even if you have a person who is making a bazillion dollars a year, ultimately what's going to give them a happy day is not what is sitting in the bank. It is the time they spend with loved ones, the time they get to reconnect with the earth, maybe the time they spend with a dog. So even when they have a fortune, it's the true wealth that actually leads to happiness, to well-being. It enables us to continue on this planet in a sustainable fashion. And conventional wealth is money. And I'm not saying that I don't want money. I would love for everybody to go out and buy my book. No kidding. Okay, I'll take that. Don't worry. I won't complain. But to consider money to be the only factor is dangerous because money is just one part of a wealth picture. It's one part of a wealth portfolio. It is not the entire portfolio. And it really does need to be used to in service of building true wealth. As we speak of true wealth, it reminds me of an exercise which you talk about in the book, which is writing out your quality of life statement And when I first heard that, I kind of thought of a mission statement, something we see often in businesses, or sometimes people even have a family mission statement. Let's talk about the relationship of the quality of life statement to true wealth, and how is it different from a mission statement? Well, for me, in my household, and in my extended family, the quality of life statement was probably our single greatest business move. 
Now, a mission statement might be something that SAP Bush Hello. SAP Bush Hello has a mission statement. It's a way we communicate what we do to our customers. We nourish and restore family, community, and planet. That is a simple thing that we put out there to help people understand what our work is about. And that's, you know, our employees are given that so that if we're not around to help make a decision, we always say, go back to the mission statement and you'll probably make the right decision. Now, quality of life statement is personal to each household. And it is something where we, each member of a household identifies their true wealth. They identify what needs to be in a day to feel rich. I don't need to have $5 billion in the bank to feel rich, but I do need a daily nap. I lay down for my nap and I have my book and I tune out the world and I'm reading a vampire novel. And I almost always call down to my husband and say, I feel so rich right now. These are the things that I need, especially if I get like one to three dogs on the bed with me, then I'm, then I'm really gold and I feel like a queen. So a quality of life statement are those things that you need in your life to feel that it's one that is well lived. And it can be the things that the day needs to hold or not hold. So maybe you don't want your days to be frantic. For us, our quality of life statement includes that we want to be able to drink coffee together in the woods every day. We want to be able to sip cocktails in the evening without racing to meetings. We wanted to be able to stay home with our kids to raise them. We didn't want to put them in daycare. We wanted our house to be one that it was okay to get messy. We wanted to be able to be together as a couple. And this is a statement that has evolved over time. It was originally something we posted on our wall because as we were leaving that extractive economy and learning to build this new life. It was really helpful to have that there as a reminder for us. But as as we've grown and developed our understanding of it, we've just We've just absorbed it. It it got rubbed off the wall a long time ago <laughs> when the kids scribbled over it. And now it's just a part of who we are. But it's a, it's a statement, however, and now it's an understanding that we come back to every time we're making a financial decision, every time we're making a decision about how our time is going to be used and who we're going to share that time with. As I think about the quality of life statement, I almost think in a sense, it's very aspirational. It's how we want to be spending our time and what we want to be doing. The truth of the matter is, is life is a lot more messy a lot of the time. You use the term shit sandwich, and that kind of explains when everything is going wrong or bad. Most people think they have to get rid of all of that in their life. And I feel like you argue a different point about why going through that's a little important. Yeah. Yeah, I think that we're all going to eat shit sandwiches and you just have to decide which one you're going to order. <laughs> and in this case, what I realized was, you know, we were joking at the at the top of this where uh, <laughs> we say how, you know, farmers are always broke, you know, farms lose money. And I came back to the family farm and I was determined to change that. And there was a point when I stepped to the helm of the business and everything was going wrong. Bob and I had opened up the cafe and all the bills on the cafe had to be paid. The payroll had to be made. The insurance had to be paid. The feed bills had to be paid. The vet bills had to be paid. And there was nothing left for us. And I was really angry about how the small farm system in this country is so difficult and how we should be able as hardworking, honest people, we should be able to earn money. And I was so angry that 
I needed to check out for a little bit. And so we did. We hang, hung a little sign on the door, said gone fishing, and we left. And we went a mile up the road into the woods, just where cell services wouldn't work. And we set up in the state land next to a pond and we camped for a couple days. And we went to every swimming hole that we could find within a five mile radius. And I spent a lot of that time sitting by the water and thinking. And what I realized was that I was drawn to this life. Yes, I loved the pastoral life, no doubt about it. But I was also drawn to the challenge. I liked the challenge of taking something that I was told was impossible and working on it. And I realized that if I was drawn to the challenge, then solving it was just going to give me more problems because I'd be bored. And it was actually an adventure that I was on. And the faster I solved it, then the faster the adventure was going to end. And I started to understand that, yeah, shit sandwiches really matter. And when you're looking at your quality of life, you should look at the problems that you are choosing. I am choosing to live close to my parents and be with them as they go through their aging process. That's a shit sandwich I've chosen. I am choosing to work in a small farm where it's very hard to turn a profit. And I'm choosing to devote my life energy to understanding that and turning that around. I am choosing to work every day with my husband. And no matter what, no matter how many times we want to we want to duke it out over something, these are problems that I have chosen. And I am realizing in my life that that's part of the journey. Rather than trying to eliminate them and be without them, I want to engage with them. Those are the things that make morning coffee with Bob out in the woods exciting. We talk about our problems. Those are the things that are fun to cast aside when it's cocktail hour and say, oh, well, can't fix it tonight. You know, and, but if you didn't have them to cast aside, you wouldn't feel so fun. It wouldn't feel so fun just casting aside, then would it? So yeah, I've, I've realized that the shit sandwich, the difficulties are actually part of the deep pleasures that we get. The turning around of your business is quite a story. And I feel like up to this point in the interview and in many places in the book, you're so great at describing the qualitative life changes you made, but there's a lot of good quantitative information also in the book to turn around your business. You had to have to you had to have a better understanding of income and you separate income into four different types. Tell us about that a little bit and what those four types of income are. Sure. Well, the first thing I want to say is a lot of people think that if you're a sheep farmer, you sell sheep and you get your income from sheep. And that is commodity agriculture thinking. If you, we used to learn that diversifying was if you are a wheat farmer, then you diversify by planting soy and wheat and corn. And so we learned with livestock, if you're a sheep farmer and you want to diversify, then you have sheep and cattle and chickens. But all of that is work and work and work or tilling and tilling and tilling. And all of that subjects you to the whims of nature, which we are learning are quite volatile. And I started recognizing that I had to think of diversification differently. And that's when I started recognizing the four different income streams. And I realized that making this life profitable and viable and pleasurable 
meant choosing three of these four income streams that I discuss in the book. And those are, the first one is meaningful employment. Now, I don't have meaningful employment, but other people might. Meaningful employment is a job that you go to because you care about it. You love it. You get up in the day and you say, I was put here on earth to do this work. And the reason why I want it to be meaningful employment and not just a J-O-B job is because um, it's actually the most expensive form of employment there is because the way our tax codes are written in this country, earned income is taxed at a much higher rate than other forms of income. So then the next form of income is business income, self-employment income. And that business can even run at a loss a lot if someone else in the family has meaningful employment because it helps bring down the cost of the meaningful employment. In meaningful employment, you get you are paid so much money for what you do and then the taxes are taken out and then you have to live on what's left. When it's business income, you have your business, you bring your revenue in, you pay for the expensive, you pay for the expenses and then you are taxed on what's left of that. So your rate of taxation is significantly lower. So those are two forms of employment. The third form of employment, which is why I can live on $20,000 a year when I'm lucky enough to get it. That third form of employment is non-monetary income. Now, in my particular situation, non-monetary income is huge, but non-monetary income is anything that you can do for yourself that you don't have to pay money for. Now, I live on a farm that raises sheep and pigs and chickens and eggs and beef, and so I have all of that at my disposal. I run a farm-to-table cafe and the farm, the produce farm down the street gives me these big boxes of beautiful produce every week to cook in the cafe. We get to eat the leftovers. So our non-monetary income is very, very high. For other people, it can look differently. It can be taking care of children rather than putting them in daycare. It can be taking care of elders rather than paying for elder care. It can be fixing, mending, repairing, fixing your car. All of these things are things that we can do for ourselves that do not require us to lay out money and they are not taxed at all. So in my situation as a farmer, the non-monetary income is very, very high, which is why for a lot of farmers, it looks like we're always losing money because economically you can, you can have a financial loss, but the farm supports the non-monetary lifestyle. So that's the third form of income. And then the final one, and this was key, is passive income. And now the government has a very, very specific definition of passive income. But when you work flipping eggs for people's breakfast in the morning and you're scrubbing toilets and you're herding chickens and sheep and you're running around all day long, passive income has a much broader definition. It's basically <laughs> that anything. sound very can... passive, yeah. <laughs> exactly. But we started to realize that passive income is really important for us Because we rely on our bodies so much that we need the ability to be able to get sick, to have an injury, to recover, or to just take time off. And so passive income is very important in our overall profile as well. And that can be something as simple as investment income. In our case, we have vacation rentals. We have a a tent on the property that people can rent and sleep in the tent. Compared to the regular farm work, that's easy. Keep it up with that site. It can be royalty income. It can be a business-to-business investing. 
it can also be business transfer. Like right now, my parents are a little bit, they're getting less and less active on the farm, but the farm is still supporting their way of life. So they're getting the residuals from that. And that's that can happen between the generations, cooperating with each other. There are a lot of ways to generate that passive income. And so with those four forms, meaningful employment, business income, non-monetary income, and passive income, I tell people you need to choose three when you're building your your lifestyle. And whatever three you choose, they need to match up with that quality of life statement that you've developed. You can't just choose three and say, well, they're workable and they're available. Because believe it or not, once you step into this kind of life, there are more opportunities than you realize. And you're going to have to learn to say no. And you need to look at how they're going to instead measure up against that quality of life that you're really and truly after. You mentioned there are more opportunities than you realize. You come from a farm culture. And from my understanding of a farm culture, work is a virtue. Tell me about this idea of rest. Are we, do we have an overwork culture here in the United States in general? And with all those things you're doing and all those forms of income and all the different businesses you have your hands in, how do you build in time for rest in your life? You know, that was probably the biggest change that happened when I stepped to the helm of my family's business. Basically, if you're a farmer and you die working and you worked hard your whole life, then you get an honorable burial because everyone says he worked very hard. She worked very hard. They worked very hard. And as I grew into this, I started realizing, you know, I'm 47 and I'm considered a young next generation farmer. That's because we're dying out. People are not coming into this line of work. And There was a period of time where farming became sexy for a little while. New York Times read some nice stories about young, hip farmers. We were cool for a little bit. Mm -hmm. And then you leave those farmers young and hip for five to 10 years, and suddenly there's a mass exodus again. They're overworked. They're exhausted. This lifestyle, if we treat it like it's heroic and honorable, and then people fail at it, number one, you're making them feel even worse, but also you're just going to lose people coming in. It's stupid to consider working hard to be the mark of good character. I didn't understand that fully at first. I had an inkling that that was a problem because I realized, you know, if I'm coming home at night and falling into my bed and can't talk to anyone and I'm so tired, I'm crying. And this can happen very easily in family farming. And you're fighting with your family all day long because you're all just brought right to the edge of sanity with the level of work something needs to change. And so I started exploring the idea of rest and what that could do for the bottom line. And I came across a brilliant book written by Alex Sujong Kim Pang called Rest, where he really researched the power of rest for improving our creativity, for improving our well-being. And I started realizing how important it was to fold that into the farm business. I started realizing that when I rest and really take good, long, protracted rest, I get creative. I figure out how to solve problems. I figure out how to do something new, how to do something different. This is how I reignite my passion for my life. Not only that, it helps to prevent injury, which is really important with what we do. It helps to prevent illness. And so I feel like when we're going forward, we tend to revere in this culture, the entrepreneur who, you know, 
is working crazy hours. We revere the farmer who is working all the time. And I got to say, that's not actually what leads us to get ahead, to make our best decisions and to be healthy and happy with our families. We're talking with Shannon Hayes. She's the author of Redefining Rich, Achieving True Wealth with Small Business, Side Hustles, and Smart Living. We're going to take a short break. I'm Doc G, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. Hey, I just wanted to remind everybody that if you're enjoying the conversations here on the Earn and Invest podcast, we continue them 24-7 all the time at the Earn and Invest Facebook page. That's earnandinvest.com slash Facebook. Again, earnandinvest.com slash Facebook. There we have the conversation similar to the podcast. Anything from current financial and fiscal policy to what's happening in the world today in current events, you name it, we discuss it there. Check us out. We love you to become part of our community. Let me reintroduce you. Shannon Hayes is a third-generation farmer, chef, and CEO of Sapbush Hollow Farms. Shannon, we were just talking about the overwork culture and the need for rest. You spend a whole chapter talking on the ability and the need to say no. Tell me how that's changed your life. One year I decided, in a life like this, as you can imagine, Christmas presents don't really have a lot of meaning. And so you want to mark a holiday. Well, what what do I want for Christmas? What do I want for Christmas? And I I don't need another sweater and I really don't need jewelry and I don't need fancy champagne glasses. I realized what I wanted was to learn to say no because I left the extractive economy. It's true. But I was still as as a, at that time, I would consider myself a mid-level mother, not a young mother. But, you know, (laughs) as a mom, I felt like, I had to show my worth to the world. I had to do everything my parents asked. I had to do everything my kids' friends' parents asked. I had to, you know, I didn't have a job. So for some reason, I felt that that meant that I had to accept everything that came my way. And a lot of that was fear-based and forgetting what the quality of life was about. And also just trying to show the world that I was a good person. I went on an odyssey to learn what it meant to say no. And it started off with something simple, realizing that I had no time to breathe in my week and I was going to cancel six things that were on my calendar. And I did it. And then I went on a quest, reading quest, to find out what other people had to say about no. And I found this great book by William Urey called The Power of Positive No. And he was this guy who wrote about getting to yes about the art of negotiation many, many years ago. And he wrote a book that I think is even more important, how to, how to say no. And in it, he has this formula called yes, no, yes. And I learned it. And I started realizing that it had a lot of application in my life. It was easy to remember. And my daughter's started using this formula as well. And what it is, is to say yes, no, yes. You keep that formula in your head every time you want to tell someone no. And I discovered that I would say yes to what I valued of what was being asked of me. So let's say you said to me, you know what, Shannon, I'm going to start an organization 
of people who have MDs and PhDs supporting each other in podcasts by running marathons <laughs> and raising awareness. And, and we're going to have weekly meetings. Well, I got to tell you, I'm going to say no to that. <laughs> me, me too. <laughs> but I value our relationship. And so I have to say some, so in the formula, you know, a lot of times we don't say no because we value the relationships. We care about the person who's engaging with us. And so what I might say is, Hey, doc G I love the work that you're doing. And I think that you have a, a great mission. I can't do that and keep my balance of life. So there's the no. So yes, I honor the work that you're doing. No, I can't do that. But the final yes is what I can do. So I might say, I can't do that, but I'd be really happy to promote your project on social media. If you send me the graphics, I'll put it up on all my social media channels. So what I'm doing there is preserving our relationship. But I am saying no. And I learned on my quest for no that successful people say no way more often than they say yes. And I've discovered that. Yeah, I say no, probably you get it. For me, I'm not real good at it. It's probably 10 no's for every yes. But, you know, the, the, real, the real successful people in life, they probably have 100 to 200 no's for any yes that they say. Let's talk about this idea of success. I come from a background of financial independence. A lot of people who are part of my community look at a specific net worth goal. A lot of them either live in corporate America or have their own businesses, and they want to get to a certain monetary value that makes them feel like they're financially independent. They could not, you know, decide not to work if they didn't want to or decide to do whatever they wanted to do. When I hear your story, I very much actually think you are very financially independent. In other words, you fill your time doing things you mostly want to do, things that probably in a lot of ways you would do even if people didn't pay you for it. The difference is I did a lot of working really hard in my 20s and 30s. When I listen to what you do on a regular basis, it sounds a little exhausting. I mean, your life doesn't sound easy, and yet you seem to be very comfortable with that. Why? That's a great question. Well, I would say I probably read the same books you did way back when about financial independence. And I had numbers in my head at one point too, and was always working toward those numbers. And I realized that working toward those numbers was making me really unhappy. And I wasn't going to get there if I held those numbers out in front of me. And so I was going to be pursuing a life and denying myself life. <laughs> and so I went instead directly for what was priceless. Rather than going for a certain number, I went for what was priceless and recognized that I had the skills to live at, at a totally different level and to go for that directly. Yeah, to give you a lot of credit, there are a lot of people who do go after that financial net worth model and then they get there and then have to create what you're doing now. In other words, they never built that sense of purpose and meaning. They never had their quality of life statement figured out. So only after they get there, do they say, what now? And then have to do that kind of deep soul searching. You mentioned that you read a lot of those financial independence books. 
I'm wondering how you yourself look at redefining rich. Do do you see that as a personal finance book? That's a great question too. You're tough. (laughs) I see it as a personal finance book that is asking people to understand wealth more broadly. So it's not finance is more than dollars. Finance is how you spend your time, how you spend your energy, how you think about your problems. These are all limited resources that we have. It's not just money. So I'm asking people to take this money idea and expand out this idea of wealth and then learn how to work with all those variables together to build a life. And yeah, I think a lot of people are going to find that financial independence, so to speak, is a lot easier to achieve than than many of us initially believe. In this book, Redefining Rich, you are not the only storyteller. Bob, your husband, has some stories which you tell for him, as well as your daughters, Sersha and Ula. I'm wondering, as they grow up, how would it feel like to you if they pursued that more academic pathway or even the corporate pathway? What would that be like? You know, that's really interesting because one of the ways that one of my friends called me out a couple of years ago is I was pushing my girls to leave the farm. Hmm. Now, Sersha is 18 and Ula is 14. And I was pushing them to go have other adventures, to get out from this life. And she said to me, why are you doing that? And I said, well, because I don't want to co-opt their life plans. And I want them to, to make choices and to know what else is out there. And she called me out and said, Shannon, why do you deny your children's ability to think for themselves? They're smart. They can make their own decisions. And I have repeatedly had to grapple with that. Now, my daughters are very different from me. I have a few shirts that I own and I'll, you know, just change, you know, when one smells bad, I'll change and put another one on. I'm kind of a slob when it comes to dressing and I don't care about my hair. My daughters, from the time they were little, they loved princess dresses. And my rule with them was, well, as long as you're willing to do chores, I don't care. So they were the best dressed little girls going around the farm with their Cinderella gowns. And they actually study fashion design, both of them, but they've always worked in the family business and they earn their own money. And actually at this point, my 18-year-old earns more money than Bob and I do combined. And she has she is an employee of the farm. And she has what we did is rather than taking the money for ourselves, we let her earn it. And she has the ability to pay to go to college if she chooses to go to college. She has not made that choice. So she graduated early. She graduated last year. She was 16 when she finished, and she's been working for us full-time since then. She works with me in the cafe. She does management on the farm. She helps Phil fulfill all the retail orders. And at the same time, she's passionate about musical theater, and she studies, she takes online singing classes, she participates with local community theater organizations, and she has hired a professional fashion designer who works with her privately and with her younger sister to do college-level fashion design work. So they are very different from me, but what I'm seeing is neither one of them is waiting for anyone to hand them an opportunity. They're not waiting to climb, they don't see conventional college the way a lot of kids do as the next step in achieving something. To them, the college needs to really show them that it has something to offer. And they have not 
seen that yet. They haven't seen something that they value there yet. I don't know if they will or not. They do have the ability to go, at least at this point. They also tend, in thinking about their lives, they're a little bit unusual than typical kids because as they learn skills, they're not really interested in in getting hired someday. They look at those skills as, how can I fold this into the life that I want? I really love to design clothing. How can I make a livelihood with that? They don't dream about going to New York City and having a job on Fashion Ave. They don't dream about getting anyone else's approval for what they do. They take what they love to do and they look at how they can fold that in. And what's also very interesting is they look at how they can fold it in with a life tied here. They're not seeing opportunity someplace else. And that's really a huge thing because this is an area that was deemed, as you said at, at the top of this, this was deemed as a non-viable community. This was deemed as, as, as you know, a dead end life. And so when you have young people saying, wow, I have family here, I have friends here, and I think I can figure out how to build a livelihood here. I don't have to pack up and move across the country every five years in order to have a way of life. That's, that's really meaningful. So are they going to do the exact same things I've done? Probably not. But will they carry some of them on? Yeah, we'll see what sticks. We'll see what I did that they like that they want to carry forward, just as I've chosen from what my parents have done to carry forward. And Sapwish Hollow will probably look very different in the next decade. As I listen to you talk about your daughters, it reminds me why I do actually look at your book as a personal finance book. Because in a sense, when we're talking about redefining rich, we're really talking about redefining our expectations of what we see as meaningful and successful based on what we really want in life. You use the term quality of life statement. For me, I often say purpose, identity, and connections. Some people use the term self-actualization. But the point of it is, is that we define wealth moving from inward to outward as opposed to from outward to inward. I've really enjoyed having this conversation. wanted to thank you for coming on today. I want to end this episode the way I end every episode by asking you what is up next in your life and certainly where can people find you and buy your book? Oh, I love to be found. Well, what's up next in my life? Well, the days are growing shorter, which means I will be going into a bit of a seasonal retreat. Part of my quality of life is resting in the wintertime. So a lot of cross-country skiing, a lot of hiking in the woods, a lot of watching snowflakes and having nice meals around the fire with my kids. But at the same time, a lot of book promotion, but I put my podcast to sleep at the end of the growing season. I focus this time of the year on homeschooling my kids, but I can always be found at my website. There's two different domain names, both work, the radicalhomemaker.net or satbush.com. And if people are interested in redefining rich and they want to play with some of these ideas, like the different forms of income or the quality of life statement, they can go to the radicalhomemaker.net and there's actually a free workbook there where they can download that and explore those ideas further. But it's even better if they buy the book. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I wanted to thank Shannon Hayes. That's a wrap.
Cool. Thank you. I really enjoyed that conversation. Did we get everything that you wanted to talk about? It's you read the book. whole book. Oh, you yes. I did. It. Of course I did. <laughs> I not only read it, I enjoyed it. Well, I'm glad. Thank you so much. I loved this. Yeah, no, it was a fun conversation. And um, yeah, I, I think the evolution of understanding our finances is 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 making them not be so preeminent anymore and, and realizing that they're a tool and not a goal. And there's there's lots of different and eloquent ways to say that. And I think your book does that very well. Um, and Thank I think you. it's something we continuously need to remind ourselves. And, and a lot of people are not. And so you have people who can't make any money and they have their own set of problems. And then people who can make tons of money, but they also have their own set of problems. They're not exactly sure how that actually translates into a good life. And I, again, I think Redefining Rich gives us a solid answer to that. Great. Well, I, I hope that, uh, that other people see that too. <laughs> it feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday. So listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.